Would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 10? And as always, we begin by reading this chapter together and uh, then talking about it. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we do so? <clears throat> Paul continues by saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. He says, the man who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and it is in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, which is that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who not, did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would really pull back the curtain, the veil, Lord, and open our eyes to the holiness of who you are and the truthfulness of your absolute revelation. That, God, that there would be a moldableness about our hearts, Lord, that we would be malleable to your truth and that we could be conformed in increasing ways to the image of your Son, Jesus. We ask this, Father, believing because we know that you listen and you hear and you care. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a dynamic that exists in the church in America today that has never been seen before. For the first time, there are four separate generations basically endeavoring to worship and to work together. 
And what makes this somewhat challenging is that each generation grows up in really a different world. Each has its own unique life experiences that shape how they view everything so that as you talk about things that we seem would have some commonality like money or success or society and even maybe most importantly spirituality, those questions are going to be defined differently depending on what generation you're a part of. Now, I know in saying this, I'm making generalizations, and the problem with generalizations is they're dangerous simply because they're mostly true, but not absolutely true. So I understand that some of you are saying, I may be of that generation, but that doesn't describe me. Well, you're what they call an outlier, and you don't fit into the mold. It's okay. But what we do know is this has often led to a lot of conflict within the church over what its mission is. So that some have simply suggested each church should decide which generation they're going to minister to and realize that they're not going to be effectual in reaching the others. And of course, most of us realize that there are differences, but we don't really like differences all that much. But what's important for us to understand is that God created his church to be a multi-generational organization, if you will. He intended it to be that. In fact, when we read things like in 1 John, where John says in chapter 2, in in verses 12 through 14, he says, I write to you, dear dear children, because your sins have forgiven you on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father, and I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, and I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In other words, in the normal, ordinary functioning of the church, there is supposed to be this idea of multiple generations that create an interesting ministry of cross-pollinization. That when Paul said to the Corinthians, there are many members to the body of Christ, and not everyone is the same, but everyone is in definite need of the other. How true that is in the day and age in which we live today. Because let me, what happens is, because we have differences in opinion on what are really the central issues of faith, we end up becoming conflicted in how we should respond And it may seem like I'm really, really off theme here. Maybe I am. But as I was really looking at this passage this week, what suddenly struck me was how Paul addressed the issue of reaching a generation of people who didn't want to be reached. He's dealing with a Jewish community that doesn't want to hear what he has to say. And essentially, I believe that he gave us a template on how to speak into that next generation how to reach those that don't fit into really our definition. And part of that begins by understanding the different points of view that are out there. Let me go through those four generational characteristics real quickly with you that hopefully help us in our conversation. First of all, we talk about the generation we call the builders. 
my parents' generation. They were the ones who really kind of laid the foundation for modern America. They were the ones who fought World War II. They fought the Korean War. They fought the Vietnamese War. They, they were the ones who built the superhighway system and the infrastructure of the airlines that we now enjoy or are forced to enjoy in this day and age in which we live. All of these dynamics that have led to the industrialization and the prosperity of America came through the, not only the hard work, but actually from the taxes, the dollars and hard-earned money of that generation. And so we call them the builders because the things that you and I enjoy today so thoughtlessly oftentimes are there because of them. And they were interesting because they were a group that was defined by a very clear set of core values. They were more homogenous than our culture was today, but they tended to be moral, they tended to be traditional, they tended to be loyal, respectful of authority. They had a sense of being fulfilling your duty, that you needed to be reliable. They were unwaveringly patriotic. And they also, when it came to the issue of their religious or spiritual life, they tended to be denominational. Then my parents thought of church in terms of what denomination that they belonged to. In fact, they kind of sorted out the community based upon which church you went to. It wasn't really a matter of going to the right church or the wrong church as long as it was that you belonged to one. Now, what struck me when I was in Nashville the last, this last week was that they still kind of have that ethic there. On Sunday morning, people go to church. But there's an underlying problem that we recognize, that just going to church doesn't make you spiritual any more than living in a garage makes you a car. These things don't, the environment is not what shapes you, but it's the reason why you would choose to enjoy that environment. But nonetheless, if you're part of that generation, one thing that's kind of hardwired into your makeup is that Sunday morning comes, we get up and we get dressed and we go to church. Now you show up here like my dear mother used to show up and she just struggled because she said, you have so many nice suits, why don't you wear them? <laughs> and I had a very good theological reason. And I said, because I don't have to. But you see... And she said, it didn't feel like church because there's not an organ there. I said, well, I'm sorry. We'll park one in back. But it's just some things that kind of become familiar. They're what we know. And for that generation, there were certain things that defined what being part of church was, what being spiritual meant, that you belonged to a particular organization. So you served in that church. You tithed to that church. You were invested in that church. That was where you were going to raise your kids. That was where you were going to be buried. And then came the boomer generation. The boomer generation, as opposed to being having core values, tended to be more relativistic. Uh, we were the ones who began to say things like, you have your truth and I have my truth. Now, boomers are very hardworking and industrious people, but they're driven by something other than duty. They're driven by a need to be successful. And it's not surprising that the boomer generation created the megachurch. It's not surprising that we created the celebrity pastor. The idea that bigger was better and the idea that this, this was all going to be kind of this growth enterprise. It's not surprising that we created the corporate church. 
where the church began to operate much like a corporate entity with the same kind of business structure and concerns. We often like to blame it on the government or the requirements of the, of the culture, but the reality is the business of America is business and we're doing church oftentimes as if it were a business. And what happened is that as consumer Christians now, not committed to core values, but as consumers of a product, we basically shop around to find where our felt needs are best met. Someone we very early coined the phrase that the boomers were the me generation. And you can kind of see it in the publications. Our parents had the magazine called Life and then the next generation came along and we had people and then we had us and now we have self. You can kind of see the direction. There's a trajectory here, right? But the boomers were followed by basically the busters. We call them Generation X because they feel like they've been X'd out. This was somewhat of a cynical generation, unfortunately. The smallest generation of all four um, they're the ones who came up with phrases like, whatever, talk to the hand. You know, um, some of you may still remember that. Maybe that's still being spoken in your house. But this was a generation, unlike any before, which was subject to broken homes. The divorce rate spiraled upwards. Abortion wiped out a significant percentage, making them a smaller generation than other generations, not because the birth rate was lower, but because the kill rate was higher. It's a generation of single-parent homes and latchkey kids and AIDS epidemics, and they had disengaged, overworked boomer parents who basically saw giving their kids stuff as being a replacement for giving themselves. We were, they were the ones who suffered from the abdication of parental roles and relationships in the home. And so as they faced a culture that also went through significant economic downturn, they became what I call the no church generation. One said this, he says, we grew up being told we can do and be anything we want what we actually experienced were layoffs, mergers, restructures, relocations, uprooting, moving across the country for a job with no loyalty in return. In fact, one coined that said, we, are, we have become working gypsies. Working gypsies. This generation rejects strictly linear lines of communication and thought and certainly don't really believe in absolutes. In fact, they have no trouble believing mutually contradictory things at the same time and not realizing that there's a contradiction. Because in a sense, they would simply say to you, you don't think of the world in either or, but what if? And everything, therefore, becomes a possibility. But they have now been kind of usurped, in a way, by the millennial generation. And the millennial generation, those who really came into their into the fold around 2000 and, and, or 1995 in that era have been referred to as Generation Y because they're the ones who are always asking why. Uh, they're ones who are the first to have more out-of-wedlock births than in marriage. They, they, they're the ones who see a proliferation of single-parent homes. Uh, they grew up in childcare. The world was the global village, and they realized they were taught that it takes a village to raise a child. 
multiculturalism, and, and they're very native to technology. In other words, when I watch my youngest son working on technology, it's like it's part of his hand. He can sit there and drive and text at the same time, <laughs> even though he knows it's illegal and his mom is constantly reminding him that he shouldn't be doing it. But he just does it. I, I have to have both hands on it or I'll drop it. And even sometimes that doesn't help. But we have to understand that this is on one hand is a, a group of young people who have little brand loyalty. They're, they don't really, really respect branding as such because they know it can't be trusted. They tend to be tribal rather than patriotic. They form their own close circle of friends who are like them and cling very tightly to that group with great loyalty. They're highly skeptical of institutions, not just the church, but all institutions. But here's the interesting point. They really like their parents. You see, the baby boomer generation didn't really like their parents because, you see, our parents lived in such a different world than the one we were in that only 5% of the boomer generation or the f builders went to college and 25% of boomers did. Your parents didn't have a lot of the same life experience to help you. And so the boomers were the one who came out and said, well, if they're over 30, don't trust them. And we assume, therefore, as boomers that that's the way millennials or busters view us, but it's not. They don't think about you that way at all. In fact, they really like you. They recognize that they need you. That in the same way that John said, fathers, you have known the father from the beginning. They recognize that you have far more life experience and are really anxious to talk to you about that. But they're not sure that you're actually anxious to talk to them. But here's really where it kind of hits us in our context. When it comes to the church, they see the church as not bad, just not relevant. They just don't, they don't get it because they are not into institutions, they're into relationships. They don't want to be part of an organization, they want to be in a community of people whichever shape that comes in. And so they define themselves not as being religious, but rather they are spiritual because in part religion requires certainty and they don't believe that you can be absolutely certain about anything. And yet at the same time what they are certain of is that they want a loyal set of relationships that they can rely upon for the entirety of their life because they have suffered the consequences of broken relationships beginning with from childhood on up into the present. So that when you think about the millennial generation, you have to understand that there's certain things that they just intuitively reject. They reject the idea of absolute truth. They're like the Jews that Paul describes when he says that they sought to establish their own righteousness and they did not submit to God's righteousness. What do we mean by righteousness? It's a word that simply means what is the basis for being right with God and in a broader sense, right with the universe. 
that there's something intuitively that tells us, there's like an internal compass or balance inside of us that says this world is not exactly balanced. It's like that Gary Larson cartoon. It said in God's kitchen, and it shows God opening the oven door and pulling the cake pan out, and he's got a, a cake shaped like, a globe, like the globe or the earth, and part of it is collapsed, and the question is, it looks like this thing is half-baked. And there's a sense that every one of us has that our lives in this world are kind of out of sync. You know, in a world of, of Hillary and Trump and Bernie. And, I mean, it's like, how do you make sense of any of this? And so there's a yearning inside to find what is the right way that I should relate to the world. But instead, what they end up doing is Instead of looking for absolutes, they look for their own personal experiences. When Paul says to the Jews, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the depths, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's talking about this idea that I can go out in this search on my own and I can discover my own truth. I love the guy who says to me, I just love to go out in nature so I can be one with God. I'd like to ask him, well, how's that working for you? You know, the reality is I've been out in nature by myself a lot, and what I found was nature. But I can't say that I necessarily became one with God. The simple fact is that they reject that there is any kind of absolute truth, and as a consequence, they reject the Bible as being absolutely true. In fact, one Barner research study found that the top five word choices to describe the Bible by this generation was, number one, it was a story. The 50% said, it's just a story. 38% said, it's mythology. 36% said, it's just symbolic. 30% said, it's a fairy tale. And 30% says, well, it's just history. But they don't see it as being something that forms a foundation. And this is true oftentimes for believing millennials as well. They look at the Bible and they conclude, well, it's got some good advice and some good guidelines. And I like the, the general theme, but when you get into areas that kind of run counter to the cultural preferences, well, we just kind of reject those things. So we don't want to say anything against same-sex marriage. We don't want to say anything about divorce. We don't want to say anything about cohabitation. We don't want to say anything about out-of-marriage wedlock because, I mean, yeah, I know the Bible says stuff about that, but really that's not really all that essential. And so is with that, they end up rejecting making judgments. In fact, one Pew Research said that they dislike moral superiority and they don't necessarily approve, they just disapprove less. They may, not dis they may not approve of homosexuality, but they're not going to disapprove of it because that would be placing yourself in a position of moral superiority in their opinion. And so you don't find them making critically distinct decisions about the world in which they live. They will not look at something and say, that's just plain wrong. But maybe most importantly is that they don't see the church as being essential either. As the Pew Research said, they said, do-it-yourself attitude towards religion. They still find a spiritual experience attractive, but they must experience it for themselves. What's interesting is that when you 
see the traditional view of dividing Christianity into uh, the Baptists on the one side and the Pentecostals on the other. Today, I can take you to Baptist churches that feel more like a Pentecostal worship service than a Pentecostal worship service. I'll take you to a Baptist church where everybody is standing and praising God and lifting their arms and moving and in unison. Uh, and you sit there and go, what's going on here? In fact, I find with many boomers, this is disturbing. And you don't realize that they crave not to learn more information about God. They crave to experience God personally. They want an encounter with God. So, how do we reach a generation that finds a spiritual experience attractive but doesn't really have respect for the Bible or for the church and considers the church to be judgmental and unloving? And that's where I'd say, how did Paul do that in regards to the people he was trying to connect with? Well, there are four things that stood out to me in this passage as I thought about Paul's response. And it begins in the very first verse where Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. Notice that Paul began with prayer. A prayer that wasn't just perfunctory because that's what we do but a prayer that he defined as being his heart's desire. In other words, it was a longing from the innermost part of his being. You see, when we look at those around us, we have to ask the question, do we yearn for them to be saved or do we just yearn for them to be straightened out? Do we yearn to see them come into a personal encounter with the God of the universe? Or are we, just, are we just yearning for them to amend their behavior and fit into the mold that is comfortable for us? You see, that's a harder question to answer than most of us, I think, are prepared to ask. Because it simply means that I have to be willing to move and open myself up to things that aren't comfortable for me. But I go back to the very origins of the whole Calvary Chapel movement almost 50 years ago. How did that start? Well, as Chuck Smith would readily admit, I didn't like hippies. thought they were lazy bums. But his wife Kay was having, suffering from a broken heart over this generation of kids. So she made Chuck drive her down to Huntington Beach Pier on a regular basis, park in the parking lot, I can show you the space, <laughs> and look out at all these kids smoking dope and engaging in all sorts of inappropriate behavior in all sorts of different levels of undress and sitting there in their car and just praying, Jesus, save these kids. Save them. Save them. Save them. And one day, one came to their house, gave his life to Jesus, and then he went and told his friends, and they came to the house, and they gave their life to Jesus, and suddenly there was a Bible study, and suddenly the Bible study became overtaken, so they went to the church, and they started coming to church, and the church became overtaken because of one simple thing, a bald-headed man in his late 40s who was as square 
as the day is long, just simply said, Jesus loves you and so do I. And it transformed a generation. Do you understand how simple this is? So that people like me, by the thousands, if not the millions, but are, are filling pulpits all over the world as a consequence of a middle-aged couple sitting in a car in a parking lot looking at a bunch of lost kids and praying, Jesus, save them. The innermost yearning. You see, we complicate this so much. I'm absolutely convinced the longer I walk this journey that nothing of significance ever happens without prayer. And it's not simply that my prayer as a consequence causes it to happen, but something happened in Chuck's life as he sat in that car and prayed for these kids. Something happened inside of him where he went from hating hippies to loving them. And that love translated in the way that he talked to them, the way he acted around them, the way he engaged them, the way he welcomed them into his up to this point very middle class life. And that's why I think when we look at Paul, Paul begins by saying, here's where I'm at. I look at, later on in chapter, the next chapter, he says, they are our enemies. <laughs> These people are our enemies. These are the guys who are causing all the persecution. They're the ones who are getting us in trouble and running around, narking on us and getting us hauled before the authorities. They are our enemies, but they are loved by God, and therefore my heart's desire is that they would come to know Jesus that they would come to know Jesus. You see, that's, when we talk about generational differences, I believe those are walls that Satan loves to erect between people like any other difference. Things that keep people from actually interacting and engaging one another and simply having the opportunity to love them where they're at. You see, I think that one of the things I learned from Pastor Chuck was that it's not our job to straighten people out. He says, if they get saved, the Holy Spirit will fix them. If people get saved, the Holy Spirit will lead them. He promises the Spirit will guide you into all truth. If they get saved, if they encounter Jesus, he'll be the fixer. And I think it's how, I remember when I was on staff, how funny it was to me, because I remember as a, a, a new believer walking into this church, and it was, you know, bells, beads, and bangles, and barefoot. You know what I mean? We, the only thing they made sure is we had a shirt on. <clears throat> and pants, of course. <laughs> I remember somebody took a sign, and they put it up on the new sanctuary when they first built it, and it said, no shirt, no shoes, no service. And you could hear Chuck, who put that up? And he's out there with a claw hammer pulling that sign off the wall. Let them come any way they want to come. We sat on the floor. Very disrespectful. But you felt welcome. But secondly, what Paul tells, he says, you know, the message needs to be clear. And this is where I think we get in so much trouble today because I think we get so much into being cool and being clever that we forget that cool and clever never saved anybody. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit saves. And we think that somehow we need to kind of move into that generation to become like them in order to relate to them when in fact 
they can spot a phony a mile away. How did, how did, uh, how did I put it? It was like um, their male bovine fecal matter meter is really, really sensitive. I do that for those of you who are sensitive to BS. But, <laughs> yeah, male bovine fecal matter, it's meter, right? It's, it's pretty, pretty obvious. But I think what we need to understand is that we need to be very clear in what our message is, not apologetic. In fact, Paul says in verse 14, he says, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? Sometimes it, it's almost like a stealth evangelism. It's so hidden that you have to be a CIA agent to figure out what the message is. It's, a, and it's an enigma machine. What, what exactly are you saying? In fact, I think that the problem many times in churches is it is unclear what God wants. He says, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? There are those that suggest that doing what I'm doing is old-fashioned and out of sync and we shouldn't do this anymore. I will stop doing it when the Bible starts telling me to stop doing it. But he says, how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you want to see how beautiful these feet are? They're lovely, gorgeous. I love what Mark Driscoll said, and I know that Mark's gone through a tough season in his life. But he was asked some years ago how he was able to convince thousands of young Seattle hipsters to listen to the gospel message. One of the most, can I say, anti-Christian communities in the culture. And he said no one had ever told them before. How did you reach this community so close to the gospel? I just told it straight up. <laughs> I just came and I just told them. I, I did it systematically. I did it literally. I did it boldly. I did it clearly. I did it passionately, although I did it unapologetically. In fact, the, very, the original word for preacher, the word caruso, literally means to publicize, to proclaim, to earnestly advocate. Earnestly advocating for what we believe. You see, in our age of social technology and big data, we seem to have lost the simple skills of being able to talk, to talk with plainness and clarity and honesty and with what I would call a compassionate earnestness, a compassionate earnestness. I mean, look at how Paul dealt with it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 2, he says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception we do not distort the word of God. What is he essentially saying? He says we say it as simply and as plainly and as directly as we possibly can. And then he goes on, he says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So how do you begin a conversation with somebody who believes that there's no such thing as absolutes? You begin it by saying, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure there's no absolutes? How absolutely sure are you? And simply saying, but the Bible declares that God is the absolute truth, absolutely. 
that his word is truth. And then let the conversation begin. But most of us, well, I don't want to go there. I don't know if I'm competent to engage in that kind of conversation. Believe me, you're more competent than they are. What do we preach? We preach the word. Because as again, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You have to understand that just speaking the word of God, reading the word of God, there's a power in it all and of itself that God honors his word. And when you share God's word, even simple things like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life, that has power in and of itself. It doesn't require you to, to kind of gin it up or to churn it up or to generate some kind of power within yourself or to say it in a way so it's impactful. God will use his word to impact your life. It's just that simple. And he said, just give them the simple message, the simple truth. Take them down the Romans road. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Just take them down that road and say, this is what the word of God says. And let me tell you what it is. It's the word of God is sticky. It's really sticky. You get it on people and it just sticks on them and it's like trying to wash skunk stink off of you. You can't get it off of you. It's just there. And it's that confidence in the word of God. How, how do they come to faith? By the word of God, by the truth of God. Not by finding some subtle way to present it in a non-offensive way because when you strive so hard to be non-offensive, they don't believe you really believe. Which is my third point. Basically, are you real? By that I mean, do you have deep convictions? Because this is a generation that's very concerned about the reality of what you believe. In fact, they may very quickly say, well, I totally disagree with you, but I respect your right to feel that way. Because that's part of their dynamic. They don't want to be disapproving, even of things that they don't approve. But the question is, how real is it to you? You see, talk is cheap. But Paul says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And anyone who trusts in him and will never be put to shame. And the same Lord is Lord of all who richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me put a spin on that, if you'll allow me to do so. <laughs> I'm here, you're there, stop me. <laughs> we tell that to the non-Christian. This is what you need to do. You need to confess the Lord. But do you live in a way that confesses Christ? to acknowledge his lordship over your life. Do you live in a way that acknowledges lordship? I know that you and I are flawed and we're imperfect and we're, we're works in progress and all those kind of ways we try to describe the struggle to really live sincerely and earnestly. I get that. I'm not trying to put myself in a place of moral superiority over you. I battle this as much as you do. I get just as convicted when I read the Word or great Christian books as you do. I, I get that, but that's the whole point. Why are we doing this? One author that I'm kind of digging into pretty earnestly this day, every time I read a chapter of his book, i got to put it away, catch my breath, and recover 24 hours. 
because it cuts so deep to the heart with issues that I know that probably don't apply to me, but nonetheless. (laughs) But you sit there and go, why do we do that? Because we confess him as our Lord. That's why you, you sit here and listen to a windbag like me drone on about this stuff. Because you confess Jesus as your Lord, not just as your Savior, but He's a Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's the hope for which you live for, that one day you will go to be with Him. And you trust in Him. And therefore you will never be put to shame because you trust, your trust is in Him, not in you, not in me, not in any other man or any other institution or whatever. You trust in Him. And when you get in trouble, you call on Him. He's the one you cry out to. God, we need your help right now. And my question again, is that true of you? What becomes the controlling passion of your life? And I'm not getting off topic here. Believe me, this is more essential than just about everything because if the controlling passion of your life is Christ, knowing Him, experiencing spiritual oneness with Him, if that's the controlling passion of your life, you will pray and you will be in the Word Because that's where you know you're going to find the one thing that satisfies the deep passions of your own soul. No one will have to tell you to do that. Is your life defined by confessing His Lordship, by believing in Him as the answer to every issue in life, by trusting in Him to guide and direct your paths and to care for your world. And when you have those stressors and those problems, do you call out to Him? Because the quicker we do that, the more we realize that we're growing in our dependence upon Him. We suddenly realize, this is the controlling passion of my life. And fourthly, grace. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be clear in our message. We need to be real in how we live out our lives. But we also need to be ministers of His grace. Paul said in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. We don't need to be adding to it. We don't need to be adding to it. I mean, I've said this before, but I remember years ago when the Promise Keepers movement was really going hot guns. And it was a I mean, I had nothing against it. It was really, I think, had some great stuff behind it. But when they began to emphasize the seven promises of a promise keeper, I thought to myself, you know, there's nothing that empowers sin in my life more than me determining in my own flesh not to sin any longer. You want to give power to sin in your life? Say, I'm not going to do that ever again. No, you overcome sin by saying, Jesus, help. <laughs> I, can't, I can't break this habit. I can't break this pattern. I need you. I need grace. I need help. I need mercy. But the thing is, I, and I told one of my friends, I said, I can't keep the first 10 promises that God gave to me called the Ten Commandments. If I add seven more, what's the likelihood? Now I've got 17 to keep. I couldn't keep the 10. What's the chance that I'm going to be able to do this? All I'm doing is going to make, it's going to do one thing. It's going to make me feel really, really bad. And I can do that all on my own. I just have to look in a mirror and have that experience. So I don't need to, to, 
But that's the whole point. Christ is the end of the law. We are not putting them under a moral reformation project. Because he says Christ and the law for one reason, so that there may be righteousness, in other words, right relationship with God for everyone who believes. If you believe, you can be in a right relationship with God. It's not about what you've done. It's not about your past. It's not even about what you promise to do in the future. And it's not even what you're presently occupied at the moment. It's about, do you simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that you're a sinner who needed somebody to die on the cross for you? If you believe, then he will declare you righteous. Again, in verse 11, he says, the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between the Jew or the Gentile, or I would say the builder, the boomer, the buster, the millennial. There's no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again in verse 20 he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. We have a generation that's not seeking him, that's not asking after him. And God says, but I will be found by them and I will reveal myself to them. Because the truth of the matter is before God found you, neither were you looking for him. He revealed himself to you when you were in the darkness of your own sin. And he promises that he'll do that. But there has to be that graciousness that we welcome people into our midst. When we were working a couple years ago with a, we, we were given entrance into a drug rehab center. It was actually part of the judicial system and they allowed us to go in there and, and share with some of the guys. And then they, some of the guys who had leaves, uh, they wanted to come to church and so we had the opportunity to buy them bus passes so they could come all the way from South Hill to church here on Sunday morning. And I remember one Sunday morning, a, a group of them walked in. They could come six at a time. And, you know, it's pretty easy to spot guys who have been in the uh, legal system. Uh, they, they, they had all of the, the uh, visible signs of being incarcerated. And they all came down in a group and they sat down together. And so after the service, I walked up to them and just to meet them and talk with them. And one of the guys said something really interesting. He says, you know why we come here? Why we come all this way to come here? I said, why? Because when we come here, we're made to feel like we're welcome. We're made to feel like we're welcome. You see, I think there's something about graciousness that just opens people up because they feel valued and they feel safe and they feel they matter. Because more so than any other time, I think, in the history of this nation, people are more concerned about whether you care about them. They care about that more than they care about what you say. It's become a thing where we're saying that we used to say, well, first you believe and then you can belong we're really in a place people almost have to feel like they belong before they will, will be willing to believe. Because we face a generation that has a huge relational deficit 
beyond what most of us appreciate. When you have a generation where half of them grow up in homes with one parent, you, you, you understand that these are people, especially father hunger, is overwhelming. A craving for someone who would value them. So those of you who are older and you look at yourself saying, well, you know, I can't relate to these kids. I'm not technologically savvy and all that sort of stuff. You know, it was interesting me being with my grandkids, my five-year-old grandson. He wanted me to do one thing the entire time I was there, and that was to play army. <laughs> he gave me a gun, and I, he, you know, I chased him around the house, and we, we had gunfights, hours and hours of gunfights. <laughs> Grandma's going, you guys are driving me crazy. <laughs> he just wanted me to be part of his life, where he happens to be at this moment in his life. And we have a whole generation of young people. They're not walking in and saying, well, you're old. You're not hip. You don't have any piercings or tat. No, they're just afraid that you're going to reject them because that's their experience with adults. Adults are the people who they get in trouble with. Adults come into their life in the forms of abusive fathers and neglectful parents or police officers or public school officials or angry teachers. Not that all teachers are angry. But that's their portrait. That's their concept. And when they see someone like you who values them, and who wants to know, why do you feel the way you feel? Or who you are? What are you about? What's your life? It began to engage them and talk to them. They, they're, they're hungering for that. Because nobody asks them those things. Nobody listens to them. There's a huge opportunity. Jesus put it very simply. He said, the field is white. And it's ready to be harvested. He wasn't talking about 30 A.D., he was talking about 2016 A.D. The field is white. It's ready to be harvested. You are not yesterday's news. You are today. You're more relevant. The whiter your hair, the more relevant you are today than you've ever been. It would be disingenuous for me to say the church doesn't need money. The church always needs money. We're a bottomless pit, Right? But you know what the church needs more than anything else? It needs you. <laughs> it needs you. It needs you to pray. It needs you to serve, to love, to share. To... It needs you. You are what make it work. So stop thinking that you're past, you know, you're like old milk. You're past due and need to be taken off the shelf. No. You are relevant to a whole generation of people who have a parent hunger like you and I can't even begin to imagine. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear these things in a way that would translate into a change in how we see things and how we understand the issues and how we respond. Help us, Lord, to lift up our eyes and to look out in those fields and recognize that they are white. They are ready to be harvested. Deliver us from that delusion that says, well, I'm not contemporary enough. 
and help us to realize the gospel is always contemporary. The gospel is always now. And it's become more unique now than it ever has in our history. God, I pray that you'd passion our hearts. That we would begin to pray with that deep longing of heart. that was in the heart of Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem. That it was in the heart of Chuck and Cave when they wept over the kids on Huntington Beach. God, let that be our heart. Let our hearts break with the things that break your heart. I pray, God, you'd move us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue on in a few more moments of worship and reflection, hopefully reflection and response, I just encourage you just to, to lift your heart. And you may be saying, you know, I don't really think of yourself, I don't really care about what's happening in my world or with young people or all those issues. I got my own set of problems. I would just ask you to start praying that God would stir that in you. To be willing to be willing. <laughs> That's all it takes. Just be willing to be willing to say, God, just help me to care because I know I'm supposed to care, but I don't. But just, Lord, help me to care. You may have people in your life saying, I got enough family issues and problems and people in my life that need to be taken care of. I don't have time to worry about anybody else's messes. I believe that if I take care of other people's messes, God will take care of mine. That if I minister to somebody else, that God will send people to minister to people in my life. That he has a way of doing that. Because oftentimes a prophet's without honor in his own house. But I pray that I would just urge you, just be willing to be willing. And to say, God, move my heart. And I'd say that before you partake of these elements today, these elements are a statement of commitment. And if that's not something that you're really willing to commit to, then I would encourage you to, to wait before you take the elements or not to take them at all. If you're just simply going away, not doing it, wouldn't be prudent. Well, then I just um, don't blaspheme the, the message of what these elements represent. Because what they represent is our willingness, God, to follow you in the paths that you lead us.